Welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. I'm Emran Hughes, editor of Insurance Post, and today I'm joined by Bloomberg Intelligence's Kevin Ryan, Picasso's Kieran Fisher, AXA Retail's Marco Di Stefano, and Kennedy's Niall Edwards to talk about the electric vehicle insurance market. Today on the Insurance Post podcast, we're excited to have with us Kevin Ryan, Senior Industry Analyst for Insurance at Bloomberg Intelligence, Kieran Fisher, Leader of the Ongoing Development of Picasso's Vehicle Data Insight Proposition, Marco Di Stefano, Managing Director of AXA Retail, and Nile Edwards, Partner of Kennedy's. They're going to share with us their views on the challenges and opportunities facing electric vehicle insurers. Hi Kevin, Kieran, Marco and Nile. welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. Thank you very much. Hi, Emma. Morning. So, one in six new cars sold last year were electric cars, according to car buying website Haycar. Uh, Niall, how is the insurance industry currently serving this growing number of motorists? Um, good morning. From my point of view, I'm, I'm the defendant motor lawyer in the audience. Um, I only get to see uh, things when they've gone rather wrong. Um, uh, but from my viewpoint, it's still quite a, a small rapidly growing portion of the market. Uh, as a lawyer, uh, my job for the motor insurers is to understand all the issues and the additional or different risks in the use of and uh, driving electric vehicles and to be aware of those and address them. So Marco, um, in terms of um, the points made there by now, how do you see the insurance industry currently serving this growing number of motorists? Well, look, it's growing at a rapid pace, but um, you know, it's important to remember it's not necessarily ne- necessarily growing the number of motorists overall because EV is an alternative to petrol and diesel, so it's not an addition; um, it's, it's net substitution. And you know, re- it's still relatively a small proportion of the overall UK um, car park. Um, it, it's still less than ten percent, albeit you know, sixty-six percent of car owners are considering buying an electric vehicle in the next ten years. Um, nevertheless, the industry has got to change. It's got to prepare itself for this shift, and we're seeing constant changes. Um, and that's clearly um, going to impact every part of how we insure cars over time, from pricing to product to the claims um, experience. Um, now, in general, most traditional insurers have some form of EV product to ensure customers are served appropriately, um, but there's still quite a way to go um, in building out those propositions and really meeting the needs of customers and offering an all-in-one package, um, you know, everything from the car to the home charger to the insurance. Kevin, would you agree the industry is shifting in terms of how it's serving this type of motorist? Um, I wonder how quickly it's shifting. Um, I mean, according to um, the uh, the data we've got on the Bloomberg terminal, uh, 23% or one one in four car new cars last year in the UK were were electric. So it's gathering pace. But looking at the results of say an Admiral or a Direct Line, I really wonder if they're pricing correctly because we've got um, uh, current year uh, combined uh, loss ratios. Uh, up 19 points at Admiral at 98%. That's that's not a good outlook. And uh, very similar at Direct Line. Uh, their loss ratio, current year loss ratio, up 18 points at 91%. So uh, my sense is uh, the pricing isn't right yet. Kieran, would you agree? Where do you see the industry in terms of where it's currently serving EV motorists? Yes, I'd agree with Kevin. Um, at Picasso, we're very lucky that we get to work with lots of clients across the whole kind of insurance ecosystem, from pricing to claims to even credit hire. 
And I'm seeing a similar trend, to be honest. You've got the insurers that are specialising in EV and have EV products, and they're obviously at the forefront of that insurance. But I think considering by 2025, 50% of the vehicles that are purchased are going to be full battery electric vehicles, I think the rest of the industry is playing catch-up slightly and not growing quite the same rate as the uptake. Another area possibly where there's um, a bit of catch-up is motorists' awareness of the differences between electric and petrol vehicles. Um, Kieran, what do you see as um, the motorists' awareness of the different types of cover that they need for these different types of vehicles? Yeah, I think EVs is a very wide-arching terminology that that covers both fully battery battery electric vehicles but also plug-in hybrids and even traditional hybrids. Um, I did some research on on the market before I came in, and at the moment there's over 1 million EVs on the road, but that's actually broken down to about 270 fully battery electric vehicles. So even in the EV world, only actually about, what is it, 25, just over percent is is a fully electric option. And I think by, is it 2030, um, even hybrid vehicles are going to have to have 100 kilometres of range on the electric alone. So I think it's a very broad term. And of course, the market is always shifting. We're going more towards BEVs, and that's the biggest uptake now. But yeah, I don't think consumers fully understand that. Marco, do you think motorists are fully aware of the differences? Um, no, I think they see themselves simply as car owners, if I'm if I'm really honest. Um, and I think as a result of that, they're often not aware of some of the niche EV-related risks that exist today. I was talking to Kieran earlier. Um, you know, I mean, that can include something like uh, the public tripping over a, a charging cable, for example. Um, however, I think EV owners are aware of some of the more likely risks, such as running out of charge uh, that Kevin mentioned. Um, and, and I think they're looking to ensure they're covered for these situations. So I think the industry as a whole needs to be mindful of this as we build out our propositions and digital journeys. We've got to clearly signpost the features and the breadth of cover so we can really drive good customer outcomes. Kevin, would you agree that there's a lack of awareness and um, you know the industry perhaps needs to signpost a little bit more about the differences of the types of cover needed? Um, yes, I do. And I think certainly um, at, at sea level, um, at the high level, you're, we're hearing nothing um, from an investor platform um, sort of perspective. So, uh, and as, as a motorist myself, uh, I'm also being told nothing. So I, I think there's a communication issue um, from, uh, from the consumer end all the way up to, uh, up to management. Niall, would you agree with that? Is there a con- kind of consumer awareness issue? Yeah, I think there is. There's an education piece that's needed by by the industry as a whole, manufacturers, insurers. Um, I think if you look at the aggregator sites, I can remember when I've been taking out house insurance, what kind of locks you've got on the doors. And if you look at some of the surveys and things in relation to electric vehicles, uh, you see that people are getting into a sweat over what kind of uh, additional cover they need for what kind of specific electrical cabling, at what point and how they charge it, so on and so forth. Couple that with the what, 30-plus networks of charging points across the country, the fear that you can't actually charge the vehicle at certain points, how you can charge, whether your vehicle's compatible, couple that then in addition with, um, in certain areas, certainly on the motorway network, a failure to repair and maintain the charging points. And it's kind of stymieing sales and the proposition, I think, to an extent. The only other thing I'd add is that there is obviously a lot of proprietary technology involved here, one motor, motor, motor manufacturer to another. So there's probably more of a need, I know there's been a lot of work done on this, but more of a need <coughs> at the point of sale or higher 
to educate the motorists, not so much on the educational side, mm. the entertainment side, but on uh, a commonality perhaps more of the user experience, user interface, the head-up display, the controls of the vehicles mm. uh, and their capabilities. So, mm. yeah, I think all of this actually, I mean, I think uh, as um, Marco said, that there's a, there's a, people view them as motor vehicles. Although some people, what was it? I frequently hear them being described these days as literally iPads on wheels, which is a, well, which is a, which is a description that always then. Well, that's the niche, me. isn't it? That's <laughs> yes. that, that's that's a draw. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And in terms of the technology, um, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about you know the parts um, and kind of um, obviously repairs um, for EV vehicles. Marco, what is driving EV claims, inflation, and pricing competition at the moment? Well, look, I mean, we've talked about the increase in demand for EVs. Um, you know, I think it, there's a, it, you know, that, and, you know, market, there's 70% of new car registrations in 2022. You know, that's going to move to 30% of the UK car park. Um, in simple terms, EV claims inflation is driven by the fact that electric vehicles cost more to repair, you know, and, you know, there are distinct supply chain issues, so parts are not as readily available as. Um, ice car parts or in, internal combustion engines. There's also the added complication of, you know, alternative repair methods and battery handling plus, you know, the storage of EVs. Um, and then there's some specialist outsourcing elements that need to go to dealerships. So, for example, an aluminium Tesla, uh, an aluminium frame Tesla can't go on a conventional jig. So, uh, you know, in terms of pricing competition, you know, pricing for EVs is an, an industry-wide challenge. And we talked about it earlier, right? You know, given the high cost of repair, and, uh, and you know, I strongly believe the limited access of data today, so just given the number of EV cars on the market, uh, the market's currently pricing EV at a discount to the true risk cost. Um, and as data maturity grows and the volume of claims increase over time, um, I do believe that will shift and we'll be able to price EVs more effectively. But, you know, that's still still to come. Kieran, would you agree uh, kind of more data is needed to kind of price more effectively in the market? Yeah, I'd fully agree with Marco. And I'm a numbers guy, so I, I've done some research again um, Thanks to Trend Tracker, who kind of put this information together for me, um, I can see that on average, an EV repair on a Golf EE compared to a ICE Golf is 24% higher. And also only about 6.5% of the repair network is actually EV trained. So I found that quite fascinating. Mm -hmm. And of course, which one out accelerates the other with the training needed, I'm, I'm not sure. But um, yeah, as I kind of alluded to earlier, you've got your niche EV insurers um, who are kind of releasing a specialised product. But I think... On speaking to the industry over the last couple of weeks ahead of this podcast, there was definitely a air of more data is needed to understand it fully for it to become a mass market product. At the moment, it's very non-standard, almost enthusiast run. You know, people get quite passionate about their Teslas, um, but that's obviously a tipping point now for that to change. No, would you agree? More data? Yes, I would. Um, as with. Um, uh, the advances in tech with, with motor vehicles generally and moving into EV, um, there is a very big issue there between the insurers and the manufacturers, which they have worked to try and resolve in terms of access to the data in and outside the, the sensor data on vehicles. Um, uh, and um, I, I suspect with EVs and the heavily proprietary nature of the tech, one manufacturer to another, this is something that they're going to have to continue to work to try and resolve. Um, uh, so f a fair few years ago now, at least three years ago, 
but um, I remember attending uh, a seminar where um, I think uh, uh, a data scientist was saying that it's sort of like 75% less likely you can access the very same data from the very same vehicles mm. quickly in this country over and above America, which is, you know, multi-state. So, so I can see that that's going to be an issue. In terms of um, risk and additional and uh, different risks with EVs, um, and just to build on what Marco said in particular, um, I think it's worth remembering that a lot of these are being addressed with enhancements, engineering and regulation slowly. Um, take, for instance, the acoustic issue with um, you know cars being silent effectively, and then then you could pause the, the the noise that was mandated, and now hopefully you can't even do that soon. Um, but there's still a number of vehicles out there where they're effectively silent, so that they're a risk at low speeds to vulnerable road users like you know pedestrians and so forth. My point is that over time, some of these risks will be reduced down through regulation and enhancements to vehicles as we move on, and it's a new market. Um, but yes, I mean, in terms of uh, dealing with claims at, at my end, uh, everything that Marco said, uh, you need only to scratch um, a high-voltage electric battery uh, for it to be needed to be replaced. Um, couple that with the move towards modular parts for vehicles anyway, and you can very quickly reach a commercial write-off situation before you even get to the vehicle. So that there's a sudden build in the cost of repairs or just the propensity to go straight to write-off. If you, even if you don't go to write-off, uh, to get replacement parts repairs, you then have the credit hire market seemingly able to field hybrid and electric vehicles over and above the insurers to an extent, uh, which then results in greatly elevated and longer credit hire claims, which you know dwarf the injury claims in the claims culture. So you've got all of that. For employers, I mean, it's not just motive. For employers, you've got all the issues in relation to manual handling, electric vehicle batteries weigh a lot. Mm. Um, you've got the much higher voltages kicking around in the cabling and in the vehicles. Instead of 12 to 24, it's 600 plus. On a dry surface, I think 110 volts is potentially fatal. I sound like the Grim Reaper here, so remember <laughs> what I said about the risks. Yeah. And, we'll, uh, have to put a, we'll have to put a depression warning on the <laughs> podcast ahead yeah, of listening. Absolutely, but again, this will be managed out in a way, and, and again, Mark, you touched on it, but you, you have to store electric vehicles in a certain manner. You have to tow electric vehicles in a certain manner. You can't put electric vehicles near other types of vehicle. Um, uh, and, um, and then we have public liability and um, the cost of funding that largely falling on the local authorities uh, and uh, all the issues about cabling and charging points there as well, giving rise to claims. And we even have, if you, uh, you, you look at the American data research and putting up, picking up the Grim Reaper's side fully, you have potential long tail diseases, the particulates in batteries uh, when you replace them, remove them, put them in and out, etc., which again is being engineered out of the equation. But it's there as suggested long tail diseases. Also, got uh, this suggestion of high electromagnetic fields uh, causing potential disease. Again, it can be engineered out very quickly. But uh, you know, you've got all of these sorts of things going on. And finally, I suppose from the lawyer's point of view, you've got potentially a huge amount of satellite and friction litigation. So uh, in terms of where did the fire start? Did it start at the charging point in the cabling or on the car? Um, is it public liability insurer? Is it motor liability insurer? Is it employer liability insurer or some other? Uh, which, which policy extends? Which policy deliberately excludes? Um, or doesn't it? And then what falls to statute? So there's an awful lot of litigation there. There's also... Uh, Again, it can be managed out with bilateral agreements between different insurers and, and the supply chain, but um, 
there's also the propensity to sort of sue down the supply chain. So if something does go wrong and the fault insurer has to pay out, they then may be looking at bringing an action against the manufacturer, the manufacturer against the OEM or the software house or, and so on as the parts manufacturer. So uh, if you're asking me where could claims inflation come from, because it's still a very small part of the market, I can project forwards where it could come from. Niall, you've saddened me. I feel we need to. I feel we need to I turn this round. And I like EVs. on a more optimistic <laughs> note. I mean, um, Kevin. I. I sh- so I assume you know, based on the headaches um, or the um, bumps in the road that um, Niall has flagged in terms of possible claims inflation and EV vehicles, one of the key things to addressing that would be insurers and manufacturers and repairers working together to kind of understand, you know, how to reduce the cost of repairing the vehicles, drivers' behaviour you know, and then being able to price policies accordingly. Um, can you share a little bit about, you know, how how are insurers and manufacturers currently working together to understand the behaviour of drivers and the likelihood of those worrying, the long lists of claim opportunities, possibilities identified by Niall? Um, yeah, I think, um, I think insurers need to um, uh, get their act into gear in talking more um, aggressively to manufacturers. For example, I heard that um, um, a, a Volkswagen i3 that uh, had the airbag go off but was otherwise um, safe, um, that cuts the electric to the battery and automatically the battery needs replacing. Um, the software won't allow you not to do that. Now actually it's a very simple fix because there was nothing wrong with the battery in this instance. Uh, very simple fix to rewrite the software. So it's little glitches like that which are costing insurers a huge amount of money uh, at the moment that need sorting out, in my view, um, and can be those sort of things can be sorted out very easily, uh, along with uh, things like wiring diagrams from when for, for, for when there is a an accident, because every electric vehicle at the moment has a slightly different. Um, uh, electrical nomenclature so if you're a firefighter attending a scene um, you need to be very careful that the battery has been shut off uh, given Niall's point about um, the electricity potentially running around if it hasn't been shut off um, so it's little things like that that can make an enormous difference to an insured claim. Kieran how are manufacturers, insurers, repair networks working together to address some of those claims, possible claims. I think to turn this around and put a positive spin on it, of course we're seeing lower claims volumes on EVs. Not just EVs, but all modern cars, of course, because EVs and all other cars, whether they be ICE or EV, have a higher level of technology on them. And that, of course, is stopping as many accidents, but also, as much as I don't necessarily think the manufacturers and the insurers are working together, we are starting to explore some really interesting space around connected car. Because, of course, all of the vehicles that run off the production line nowadays are neon connected. And even insurers that aren't interested in telematics can still find some really interesting information from all of the sensors around the car. Because, of course, I've seen the level of data that you can get off of these vehicles, and it, it's mind-blowing. Where the indicator's on, when did the driver's door open, you know, it's connected to absolutely everything within the vehicle. So in a roundabout way, by consuming that data, which does come from the manufacturer, then it's going to help people understand risks better and settle claims fairer. Marco, how are you working with manufacturers and repair networks? And to touch on um, Kieran's point, you know, pulling some of those telematics to kind of identify behaviours and price accordingly in this market. 
Well, look, I, it's fundamental, you know, so I, I'm, I'm with Kieran. I, I suppose I come at this from a customer perspective. You know, customers, there is less frequency, there's more severity. You know, customers are, are driving less, um, though, generally, and they want more personalised and flexible products and services. Um, and mobi- mobility trends and how we best serve the customer is definitely at the forefront of our thinking. The, the key for us is understanding the needs and pain points of the customers going forward and how we might meet them for our products and services. So we start, we start with the customer. Um, and then when you couple that with the growth and availability of connected car data from manufacturers, look, there's clearly an opportunity here to create insurance products that are easy for customers to understand and enable us to provide customers with accurate prices, you know, tailored on them and their lifestyle. But we're not quite there yet. We talked about the lack of data um, in the market previously. There's some challenge with this. Um, whilst in-vehicle technology is evolving um, and OEMs have access to more data, the data across manufacturers not in one single format um, and it's not easily accessible. Um, now, I'm hoping that's going to change over the coming years, but it, it, it creates a very complex landscape for insurers. Um, we need to work really hard to partner with OEMs, but clearly the car park is not served by by one manufacturer. Um, and I'm not going to argue that Tesla dominates the market in the UK, um, but nevertheless, um, it makes for a very complex environment working with manufacturers getting hold of that data. I think another aspect that we haven't explored um, are some of the challenges around overcoming the data privacy concerns that most customers have. You know, whilst there's an appetite for the products, for personalized products, more customers, sorry, most customers don't have an appetite to share their driving data. Um, And that's a challenge and an opportunity. Um, And we need to overcome that if we're gonna create something that truly meets customers' needs and and provides them with enough value, um, you know, to to help alleviate that concern. So I I think I would come at it um, from that customer perspective, but it's it's a challenging, uh, it's a challenging market. No, would you agree it's a challenge in terms of the concerns around privacy, um, in terms of pulling information um, from large-scale telematics, um, in terms of driving behaviour? Uh, yes, I would. Um, I think, though, I mean, perhaps I <laughs> wouldn't want to leave the wrong impression. Um, it's worth remembering that there is a lot of work between insurers and manufacturers, and indeed numerous products already, which are very bespoke, as the whole market moves to more of a user-based insurance system. Um, But coming back to data, um, it's interesting that the focus of the regulation and the legislation on EVs hasn't been so much on the electric vehicles, but on the charging points and smart charging points. So yes, to what Marco said about that concern that needs to be addressed about security of data in the EVs and on the telematics side. But actually, um, if you look at the focus of the legislation and uh, regulation, it's on smart charging points and the concerns that people might get access to billing data and and user data, user account data in the charging points as well. So there is a cyber risk element and there which needs to be addressed satisfactorily so the customers are happy. Uh, And there is, uh, you know, uh, potential other types of um, uh, data issues arising from not just the the EVs, but also I'd say the smart charging points. I mean, there's so many points to touch on this, but earlier this year, Insurance Post revealed that Tesla is planning to launch a full-stack in-house insurer in the UK and wider Europe. Marco, if I come to you first, should EV insurers be concerned about this move? 
Look, I think it's a really interesting concept and something that, to be frank, makes sense from their perspective, uh, given the volume of driving data that they've got access to. I mean, last year, the Tesla Model Y was the top selling EV. I think 36,000 units were sold, followed by the Model 3. Um, so Tesla are dominating uh, the UK market. I, I guess what I'm more interested in is how the industry will respond to this. Um, you know, the challenge and competition drives innovation. You know, and we've got to we've got to we've got to think about the customer. Um, you know, just look at the banking sector. You know, after the rise of fintech. So I kind of welcome, I welcome the the kind of stimulation that that, that Tesla's positioning provides the market. Um, and insurance as an industry has access to a wealth of data. That that's the business uh, that we're in, and it's about time that we started to think differently about how we use the data to enhance the customer experience and our offerings. Um, overall, insurers and OEMs need to find a way to work together um, if we're to deliver uh, the, the, that vision. Um, and um, I, you know, I wish Tesla uh, a, a great success. Um, uh, you know. Um, but as tech car technology evolves, it's evolving really quickly. You know, data is going to become more available, um, and I think insurers will be well positioned um, uh, to compete as we move forward. Kevin, do you agree? There's nothing to fear as long as the industry rises to the challenge of whatever Tesla does. Um, yes, and I think uh, whatever Tesla uh, gets around to doing, uh, it will be supported by the insurance industry because um, if you're into making cars in China. Um, you're not into underwriting in the UK or anywhere else uh, in the world. So uh, they're, they're going to have to have a dialogue with the industry. Um, they will also buy a lot of reinsurance when they get going, I suspect. So there's going to be partnerships, there's going to be uh, co-insurance deals. Um, so it's not them setting up on their Jack Jones, as it were. Um, they're going to have help and, and that will enable the industry, I think, a good look through at what they're planning on doing. And to be frank, right now, probably get some expensive risks off the book if, if they come along and uh, take a large piece of that business. Noel, would you agree that nothing to fear? I think so. And just to pick up on what Marco said, I, you can probably remember in 2017, 18, 19, there was the initial talk with AV automated vehicles, which will all be, no doubt, EVs. Um, and there was an awful lot of <coughs> talk by particular manufacturers about their creating their own insurance. Um, and as, you know, the, the lawyer sort of like dealing with the third-party claims and looking, and no pun intended, under the hood, you actually find that a lot of these insurance products are white-labeled and there's a background, there's an insurer back there and a reinsurer. Um, and, and there's good reason for that. It's, it's the, the, the British uh, motor insurance markets probably one of the most competitive markets in the world. It's full of innovation and full of disruption and full of risk and full of new products. Um, so when the manufacturers come to uh, create very bespoke policies that stretch beyond standard motor, motor cover, they're obviously inevitably going to go to the insurers who have been at it for decades and decades and, and, and uh, they're the specialists. So uh, yeah, whereas I think Tesla might do this and it, I think, it, yeah, it's a good idea and it, it, it's a dis it, this kind of disruption is healthy. Kieran, would you agree Tesla and disruption is healthy for the EV insurance market? I do agree. I think it's a sensible move. Of course, um, as Marco said, the level of data they've got on the vehicles, it, it kind of makes sense for them to underwrite the risk as well. I guess my question is more around with the uptake of Teslas and the fact that that market segment is growing so quickly, 
at the moment, I would say a high percentage of Teslas are under five years old. And if you wanted to repair them, they'd probably go to an approved Tesla repair center. But of course, as they become more and more mass market, if Tesla want to keep everything within the Tesla repair network, that's going to push repair costs up, which is going to push, obviously, insurance costs up. So I think there's still a scope there for mass market, for people to shop around. Um, and yeah, some fair competition. So that's a reassuring note to end on. Um, after after some of the concerning um, claims um, possibilities um, raised earlier on in the podcast, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Insurance Post podcast. I'd like to thank Kevin, Kieran, Marco, and Niall for joining us and sharing their insight on the electric vehicle insurance market. As always, also thanks to you for listening to the Insurance Post podcast. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to Insurance Post and following us on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. This is the last episode of the current season of Insurance Post podcast, but never fear, we'll be back later in the year with more debates about what's going on in the industry, plus views on what insurers can do to improve. Until then, this is Emran Hughes signing off. The Insurance Post podcast is a product of InfoPro Digital.